So this morning, we are in our second to last message in our series, Blessed, where we've been looking at the Beatitudes, which is really the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, this morning, we're talking about, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or daughters of God. There's a movie that came out in 1994 that I love, and it's not a movie that I think was wildly popular. It's called The War, and it stars Kevin Costner and a very young Elijah Wood. And it's a story about a dad who returns from war in the 1970s, and he's trying to acclimate back to life, um, just civilian life. And the story tells about his struggles and the struggles of his family. And the reason why it's called the war is because it captures war on so many levels. It captures the idea of war on its largest, grandest, maybe most... um, fatal level, the fact that he fought in a war, but also it looks at the war that happens within a man who has to return and deal with his demons and the things that he brought back to his home with and from war. It also deals with the war for the children to get used to dad. Dad is different than he was when he left, and, he, and they're older, and he's older, and the war that he has to deal with with his wife to kind of make their marriage work in this new reality. And then also there's this war that's happening of just the world changing around them in the 70s. And even in their own neighborhood, the bullies are fighting against these little kids. And so there's war on so many levels, and it's just a very engaging, emotional movie. I very much enjoy it. And I think the point of the movie is that none of us avoid war. On all of its various levels, as we go through life, war affects us. In fact, there's a famous historians named Will and Ariel Durant who wrote a book called The Lessons of History. And in it, they say, war is one of the constants of human history. And war has not diminished with civilization and democracy. I think we all maybe hope that as we became more civilized, war would be less necessary. But there's no evidence that points in that direction. In fact, a very interesting statistic that they say in this book is that in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war anywhere. 3,421 years, less than 10% of our recorded existence has seen no war. The point is, there's no escaping war in its many forms. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now this is the seventh beatitude. Next week we'll, we'll study the eighth, but this is the seventh beatitude. And many commentators say that's significant because seven is also often known as the number of perfection, God's number. And this also would have reminded the early listeners of the seventh day of creation on which God rested and instituted this practice of Sabbath and rest, the practice that we are embracing even today. And the Jewish people on Sabbath, they had a greeting that they would often give to one another, and it was the greeting Shabbat Shalom. And it simply means the peace of God be upon you. But when the Jewish people talked about the peace of God, they were talking about so much more than the absence of conflict, war, and strife. They were talking about the reparation and the restoration of a world that's terribly broken and tearing apart at the seams. What they were speaking of was fullness and flourishing and true freedom. And that's really what Jesus is speaking about here also when he talks about being a peacemaker. The Bible is so intent on communicating to us that peace is such an important thing for us to embrace. Paul many times says, pursue peace. As much as it is possible with you, live at peace with other people. Pursue mutual uh, upbuilding and preserve the bond of peace. And the truth is, is that you and I, we need peace. And I don't think I need to sell you on that. If we could, if peace was for sale on Amazon Prime, we all would have ordered it by now. (laughs) We need peace to love well, to live well, 
to, to be well, to discern well, to decide well. We need peace just to be in a good place. And Jesus here is talking about peace. And I want us to see this morning three things about this peace that Jesus is talking about. And the first thing is that the, Jesus, the peace that Jesus is talking about is different than we often think. When you envision a world that is at peace, a completely peaceful world, what comes to mind? Or for most people, there's no more war. There's no more countries invading other countries. For other people, there's just no more war within their home. No more strife, no more yelling and screaming and arguing. Uh, no more divided country. No more unhelpful discourse. Uh, no, no more um, hurting one another, hating one another. Evil attitudes and actions towards each other. And that's all wonderful, right? Wouldn't, any, wouldn't we all sign up for that? I mean, doesn't that sound good? But what's interesting about that vision of peace is that it's marked mostly by what doesn't exist any longer. And when Jesus talks about peace, he's not talking about what's not going to exist any longer. He's actually talking about something that needs to exist that doesn't currently exist. It's not the absence of something. It's the presence of something. And the Jewish word shalom, which is the word for peace here, the Jewish word shalom means completeness, restoration, wholeness. And so when Jesus talks about peace, don't miss this, he's not talking about the absence of something, he's talking about the presence of something, that you and I would live lives, how good does this sound, that are complete, whole, and restored. See, when Jesus in John 14 said to his disciples, hey, I'm leaving you, but I promise you that I'm going to give you my peace, my peace I give to you, Jesus was not promising his followers a life free from conflict and crisis and chaos, because if that's what he promised in John 14, then Jesus was a liar, or he failed on his promise. Because if you study the lives of these disciples, they continued to have conflict, crisis, and chaos, and nearly every single one of them was executed, martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. So they could have said to Jesus, Jesus, you promised us peace, but the world is still against us, and life is still pretty hard, and we're still str really struggling to make sense of things. You lied to us. But when Jesus said peace to his disciples, he wasn't saying, I'm promising you a life free of conflict. He's saying that I'm promising, and this promise is for you and me also this morning. I'm promising to continually bring you into the full version of yourself. I am promising to continually and faithfully restore everything that's been lost in you. Repair everything that's been broken. Make it all new until someday you're in my presence and you are completely you. So this piece is not about the absence of conflict. It's about the ever-increasing presence of the kingdom of God. So if you and I are going to be peacemakers, here's what it means. We commit ourselves to seeing broken things made whole, lost things found, partial things completed, this world itself repaired. And when Peter talks about this idea of peace, he, uh, in his letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, it's interesting what he says. He says, but according to his promise, speaking of Jesus' promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This phrase, in which righteousness dwells, simply means in which everything is the way it was supposed to be. <laughs> everything in its right place. Everything rightly governed, rightly ruled, everything working the way God created it to work before sin infected and began to destroy creation itself. So there's a day coming where the new heavens and a new earth, where we will be in the presence of God, righteousness will dwell, you and I will serve God the way we wish that we always had, we will be with Jesus, all of our wounds will be healed, okay? So with that on our horizon, that is the horizon of all Christians, therefore, 
Anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to look back to the previous verse to know what, what is it there for. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, I just want to pause and say, are we waiting for these? How many times during the week do you encourage yourself with the thought of heaven? If you're like me, not enough. <laughs> not enough. We get so wrapped up in the things of this world and we forget, man, there's something on the horizon and it's coming and it's sure. And it's amazing. Since you are waiting on these or for these, be diligent. This implies our part. Be diligent to be found by him. How? Without spot or blemish. We can only do that through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which are received by faith, not by works, and at peace. Here's what Peter is saying. Because of the promise of what's coming, work now for it to already start happening. Yeah, we're not going to get all the way there on this side of eternity. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't commit ourselves to seeing peace, wholeness, restoration. Someday, husbands and wives, someday your spouse is going to be perfect. That's good, right? (laughs) Hold on to that. Hold on to that promise. Someday your spouse is going to be perfect. They're going to love you perfectly. They're going to love Jesus perfectly. And and, and instead of kind of being like, well, I wish that would hurry up and happen, uh, instead, here's what your role is. How can you serve them and strengthen them to get them there today? How can you help them become the person they're going to be for eternity? How can your words towards them, your actions towards them, your attitudes towards them, the way that you build them up, the way that you speak to them, the way that you support them, the way that you strengthen them, how can the things that you do today make it possible to see greater and greater glimpses of who they're going to be forever? That's what it means to bring peace. You know, the second half of this word, peacemakers, and this word makers is a dynamic word loaded with energy, which simply means this. Sometimes when we hear the, the word peacemaker, we think of people who just sit back, laissez-faire, and just kind of like, eh, whatever, whatever. Doesn't matter. I'm not going to concern myself. It's too messy if I get involved. I'm a peaceful person. No, you're not a peaceful person. That's not peace. That's a lack of courage, and that's a lack of strength. Peacemaker means that you actually do something. There is an activeness to this. There is an energy about it. When you put the words together, here's what Jesus is describing when he says peacemaker. It's someone who actively, aggressively, intentionally pursues peace in its fullness. It means you will not be satisfied until you see the wholeness of God, the restoration of God, the reparative work of God's kingdom in your hearts, in your homes, and in your communities. It means that you're fighting for peace. Sounds ironic, sounds like an oxymoron or a paradox, but you are fighting for peace. You've committed yourself to being a part of God's work of bringing reparation and restoration. Now, peacemaking costs us. Peacemaking will always cost. It costs us a couple of things. It requires us to be honest. You cannot be a peacemaker if you won't be honest because peacemakers have to be honest about what the issues are. Peacemakers have to see the brokenness the emptiness, the lostness. And if we're not willing to say what it is, we're never going to be part of the solution, part of bringing peace. In fact, in, in I think it's in Ezekiel. Yeah, in Ezekiel chapter 13, 10, the prophet Ezekiel, he, he criticizes the Israelites because there are some rulers, some religious leaders of Israel at that time who are saying, everything's good. Peace, peace. And Ezekiel says, don't say peace, peace when there is no peace. He's basically saying, don't lie. There's a famous leadership statement that says the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. 
And for Christians, we do not bury our head in the sand like we're an ostrich trying to ignore the big bad world around us. We don't just, just kind of hold on and say, well, Jesus is coming back. He's going to make everything new. And so I'm just going to hunker down, bunker down, and just wait for him to come back. And No, we are, we are compelled to act on his behalf to be part of his work. Because you know what Jesus is doing right now, what the Spirit is doing? He, they're repairing creation, restoring creation in you and me and all around us. And so to be a peacemaker is to be a part, be a, a part of that work. You know, when we, when we seek to be honest and when we seek to make peace, we do know, right, that it requires wisdom to know which battles to fight. <laughs> sometimes we're fighting battles for peace and sometimes we're fighting battles for ourselves. Sometimes we're fighting battles for God and sometimes we're fighting battles because we want to be right and we want to prove ourselves. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us know in our hearts what's going on. And one thing I read this week in my studies I had never thought about before was that when you're facing a decision, when you, when you feel like you've lost peace because there's an important decision in front of you, one of the things I read this week warned me and said, and this was important for me to hear, don't make decisions so you can have peace. If you do that, then your hope is actually not in Jesus. It's in you making the right decision or in the outcome that you're hoping for. So here's the, here's the point. Let me see if I can be clear. Christians don't make decisions for peace. We make decisions from peace. So what that means is that even in conflict and crisis and chaos, we can have peace. And because we have the peace of God that passes all understanding in the midst of that, we don't rush into decisions. We don't choose something just because we think it's going to be easier. We don't choose something just because we think it's going to give us peace. We rest in peace, and from a place of peace, we make God-guided decisions. We don't go, if I, maybe the sooner I decide, the sooner I'll have peace. If we make decisions that way, we're often going to find ourselves making unwise decisions in the name of pursuing peace. But we don't actually have to pursue peace because, here's the gospel, peace pursued us. And he himself is our peace. So peace requires honesty. Peace also risks pain. Anybody ever, anybody ever try to make peace between two people, and the next thing you know, they're both angry at you? It happens a lot, by the way. Two people who have nothing in common all of a sudden have something in common, and it's not pretty. The very next beatitude, which Pastor Jared Berry is going to teach us about next Sunday morning, says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Do you think Jesus knew what he was doing when he put that after this? <laughs> you want to be a peacemaker? Great. i got one more blessing for you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Because you try to get in between people who are angry with each other, and often the persecution comes. There's the risk of pain if you're going to be a, a peacemaker. It's the pain of being misunderstood, the pain of being rejected, the pain of failing. How many of you have ever tried to make peace between people and you failed? Because we're not in control. We can't change people. We can't even change ourselves. And so this is a risk that we take, but we take it because we believe that we've been called to be peacemakers, to see the restorative, reparative work of Jesus in this world. Now let me apply this for us and then we're gonna to go to our next point. Um, how about in our friendships? When you look at your friends, can you identify the things in your friends that maybe along the way they feel like they've lost? Lost dreams, lost hopes, lost purpose. Do you have friends in your life and you'd say, yeah, these are the things that are broken about them? Well, as the people of God, one of the things we're committing ourselves to as peacemakers is to be instruments in God's hand to bring wholeness and restoration and to speak life and truth into the lives of our friends. How about in our workplaces? What does it look like to do work that contributes to making this world the way that Jesus will make it someday? What does it look like to do work that leaves people, places, and things better than we found them? And to say, that's good work. That's the work we were created to do. And in doing that work, we bear God's image. What about in parenting? 
I'm always uh, haunted by Ephesians 6.4 where Paul says, dads, don't provoke your kids to anger, but raise them up in godly counsel and wisdom. And just as this like warning to me that there's a wrong way to do this. There's a way in which even with my good intentions, I can provoke my children to anger because I'm not committed to their peace. I'm committed to my peace and I'm more interested in looking like a good dad than I am in who they should be. A lot of times my parenting efforts is more an effort to make myself feel good about myself than I actually care and love what God is doing in their lives. And then marriage. This is where the rubber really hits the road if you're married. How do we commit to being peacemakers in our marriage? And I already kind of hinted at it. What does it look like to speak to each other and to serve one another and to strengthen one another in a way that says, I believe that someday you're going to be completely whole, completely restored, completely new, no baggage, no regrets, no pain, no insecurities. You're going to be that someday in God's presence. So I want to help you get there now. I want to be a part of moving you in that direction and bringing out of you the fullness of who God created you to be so that you would bear his image well. It's a big deal. In fact, we're committing this year as a church to strengthen the marriages in our church. I want to mention this by way of announcement. We're bringing marriage mornings. We're calling it marriage mornings. It's going to be the first Saturday morning of every month for April, May, and June from 9 to 10 a.m. We're going to have child care provided, nursery, child care for up to sixth grade. We're going to have some breakfast out there. We're going to gather here. This is for anyone who's married or engaged to be married. 9 to 10 a.m., and we're going to spend an hour. It'll be me and my wife sometimes. I'm going to bring in other speakers, and we're just going to invest into marriages this year. This is something that God placed on my heart two years ago, but with COVID, we struggled to get this on the calendar. But now I feel like we're moving into greater health as a community. We're bringing this, this starting in April. Listen, we invest so much into our education. We invest so much into our careers. We invest so much into our lawns. Some people invest more into their lawns than they do into their marriages. We invest so much into our homes. We invest so much into our hobbies. We got to invest into our marriages because the enemy would love to destroy our marriages. And Jeannie Praxel, a member of our church, called me up a few weeks ago and said, the Lord, I feel like the Lord gave me a word, and it's this word that we basically, I'm going to let her share it sometime when she's here. We got to fight for the marriages in our church. Some marriages are built on a solid foundation, but many are built on sand. Matthew chapter 7, and when the winds come and the storms come and the waves come, they're going to fall over. And I get it. This is hard. This is hard work. Two sinners loving each other for the rest of our lives, that's hard work. But we're committed to this. So this is what we're going to do. Put it on your calendar. First Sunday, April, May, and June, uh, no cost. Just come, show up, and we're going to pour into marriages because we believe that part of being a peacemaker is having a marriage in a home that is filled with peace. Now remember... Peace is different because it's not the absence of something, it's the presence of something. And being a peacemaker is not sitting back, it's leaning in. Secondly, why is this peace so elusive? Now, when we think of peace, we often think of like negotiating between two opposing parties. I read a book a couple years ago called Never Split the Difference. It's by a guy named Christopher Voss, who was the lead FBI negotiator for years. Fascinating book, well worth reading if you're in leadership, if you're, I mean, every single one of us, we don't realize how often we're negotiating, but I think it's the first chapter of the book where he says, you're always negotiating. Parents, every conversation with my daughters feels like a negotiation, right? We're always negotiating, and he shares these riveting stories of when he was negotiating for hostage releases, 
as an FBI negotiator, and then he takes the principles from that and helps us understand how we can have good conversations when, we're no go- when we are negotiating. But often this is what I think of when I think of peace, that we need to negotiate things. And this is hard work because the emotions are high and the opinions are different and stakes are high. And, and in these moments, there are specific things we need to do. And if you've studied conflict resolution, you know, number one, you got to keep the space safe. If the space doesn't feel safe, the conversation falls apart. We have to listen to understand, not just respond. So many of us are terrible listeners because all we're doing is waiting our turn to talk, which is very different than listening to understand. We have to understand and own our stories, the narratives that we've created around the events that have happened. We have to identify outcomes that both parties are fighting for and want so that it becomes the true north in conversation. And we have to be willing to commit to next steps that make sense and are helpful. That's, what, that's really the heart of conflict resolution. There's so much more to it, but that's it in a nutshell. Guess what? It's hard. It's so hard. It's easy to talk about. It's so hard to do. But as hard as it is to make peace between other people, it's nothing compared to how hard it is to have peace inside of my heart. You've learned this, right? It's easier to negotiate peace between enemies than it is for you to have peace in your own heart. And we live in a world that is constantly trying to steal our peace from us. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, I'll be 44 this fall. When I was growing up, the only way that, the only problems that I worried about were in my home or in my neighborhood or maybe in my community. Community. If I happened to read the Post Standard that morning or the Herald Journal that night. Remember when there was two papers? Can you believe that? There was a paper in the morning, there was a paper in the night. Kids are like, what's paper? But, but we, used to, we used to get news sent to our homes. And, and unless you read that stuff, you didn't even know about the, the work. Now I know about things that worry me on the other side of the world within seconds of it happening. Why do you, do you wonder why we're so anxious? Why we're so worried? Why we can't rest? We have unprecedented access to problems. We have a constant flow of information that constantly makes us choose sides, argue with one another, and worry about things we have zero control over. And we live our lives that way. And we live our lives on platforms, on social media, hoping people like us, hoping people will follow us. And we live in a world that says you are what you do and you're worth what you produce. And it's no wonder that we can't find this sort of peace and this peace is so elusive. Now notice, Jesus knew that this was hard. And the way that we know that he knew this was hard is because it's really the last beatitude that speaks of a characteristic a kingdom person has. And we've noticed during this series that this is progressive, Each one leads to the next. So here's what it means. You can't be a peacemaker if you don't have the first six. That's how hard this is. That's how challenging this is. That's why this is so elusive. You will not be a a person of peace if you're not poor in spirit. If you don't recognize your need for God's peace, you're never going to bring peace to others. You won't be a person of peace if you don't mourn the brokenness inside of you and the brokenness around you. If you aren't meek, remember week three, blessed are the meek? If you're not meek, if, you, if power doesn't control your heart, if power controls your heart, you'll never be a peacemaker. Even your peacemaking attempts will be just, just attempts for you to gain more power. If you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, and if you're not pure in heart, you may be a peacemaker, but it'll be for all the wrong reasons. And if you're not merciful toward others, then you lack the very requirement of heart to be a peacemaker. It's not possible in the natural. It's elusive. Peace. We can't find it outside of us. We can't find it inside of us. What do we do? And this is the last thing that we see, why this peace is possible. At Jesus' birth, the angels described Jesus coming and said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth 
between God and men with whom he is well pleased, which is wonderful, but also raises this question. Who is he well pleased with? How could God, a perfect God, be well pleased with you and with me? And Paul helps us understand the answer to this question in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were enemies with God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you were enemies, you were not at peace, have been brought nearby. Here's the cost, here's the price, the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember earlier we said peacemaking is costly. Well, Jesus Christ understands that because he shed his very blood to make peace between us and the Father and us and one another. For Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look at all this reference to what Jesus did for us. He brought us near. He is our peace. He made us one. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. And by becoming our peace, Jesus now dispenses his shalom, his wholeness, his restoration, his reparations, his completeness to those who will receive the gift of peace from God. And this is why peacemakers will be called sons and daughters of God, because that means you partake of the very nature and character of God. Listen, to be a peacemaker is to be like God, because God was the only one who could bring the peace that you and I desperately needed, and he brought it through his son Jesus, who in his sacrifice tore down the wall of hostility between us and God because we were enemies, and now you and I are no longer enemies of God, but we are his children, and he loves us. And he chooses us. And here's, here's, here's what is, I think, the best summary of all of this. God's kids make peace. God's kids make peace. God's kids speak life. God's kids look to restore. And whenever you're wondering, what does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of God, look for these beatitudes. Listen, there's so many people out there who call themselves Christians. There's so many Christian organizations. And many times people look at them and go, ah, I don't want anything to do with it. You know what? I don't want anything to do with a lot of it either. What do we look for to know if something's actually Christian? These beatitudes. Are they meek? Do they mourn? Do they hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are they pure in heart? Are they peacemakers?